Charles Richens told me this morning to make the sermon short because he's not done building his ark yet. So, sorry, I'll see what I can do for you, Charles. You shouldn't put it off to the last minute, though, bro. That's on, that's on you. Yeah. <laughs> we are taking a brisk tour through the books of the prophets. Uh, the prophets' job was to warn people about what was coming on the horizon, be able to look ahead, to uh, be able to say, this is the, what you need to look out for. And there had been a pattern of disobedience and rejecting God among the people. And the prophets warned them. They said, hey, if you keep doing that, then there are going to be consequences. And one of the consequences was that God was going to send them into exile. And that happened. The people were sent, first, the northern kingdom of Israel was sent into exile by Assyria when they invaded And there was a little bit of time that passed before the southern kingdom of Judah was then invaded by the Babylonians, and they also were sent off into exile. But throughout it all, as you've been reading through this, the consistent message that the prophets have been preaching is, return to me. It's the voice of God calling people to return to himself. And there was always still hope. One of the prophets that we are looking at, his name is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, we started last week looking at this book of Ezekiel. He was supposed to be a priest, but because he was among some of the people who were taken into exile, he wasn't able to do that. But God called him dramatically in a vision. And he uses these visions and different words that God has given him to try to speak to his people through this guy, Ezekiel. In this message series, uh, I usually, what I do is we, we're, as we read through these things, I, I choose maybe one passage for us to look at and explore a little more deeply. That's what we did last week when we looked at when God told Ezekiel to eat this scroll. And we talked about filling ourselves with God's word and having it be something that gets down inside of us, something that we're able to chew on and then we're able to digest it so it becomes part of who we are and goes and kind of flows out of our pores and becomes the, the real actions that we take in the world and the, the words that we say to other people. Well, this week, instead of looking at one particular passage, uh, I want us to consider an important theme that is throughout the whole Bible, but that is really important in the book of Ezekiel, and it's the theme of the temple. And it, this is not something you probably walked in here thinking about, but I'm hoping that it'll be something that would be really meaningful us for us in our faith going forward. Now, because it's a theme, I will tell you, uh, instead of picking one verse, we're going to do a few different ones. I'm going to try not to lose you, but you probably should buckle up a little bit. But my hope is that the idea is that as you are reading ahead in the book of Ezekiel, that you're going to understand a bit better as you do read this. You're going to understand some more of the, the bigger themes in Scripture and I am praying that it's going to be really meaningful for you personally, that you'll have a better understanding of who God has made you to be and what God is sending you to do in the world. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to shape us by your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life-changing. We pray that the Holy Spirit will be at work in us, making your word come alive so that Christ will be honored that we will know that we need a Savior, that we will know all our eyes will be directed to you, our triune God, we pray in your name. Amen. 
All right. Well, the temple, this temple is the meeting place with God. It was a, a key place in our relationship with God. It was the place where heaven and earth were viewed to be overlapping. So in this passage, uh, Ezekiel is going to have two important temple visions. The, the first one is that God, his presence is actually departing from the temple. And secondly, we see God's presence returning to the temple. So the first one is this, a vision of leaving the temple and it's a broken relationship, and then of returning to the temple and a restored relationship. So let's look at the first one, the broken relationship. So at first, there is a devastating vision that we get in Ezekiel 9 to 10. If you guys don't know it, by the way, I was saying we are... We are reading through the books of the prophets right now rather quickly to just expose ourselves to it. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to still be in Ezekiel. We're happy to have you read along with us. Uh, you can read this particular one. We're choosing the New Living Translation for it, but you can choose any translation you like. We're about halfway through the book of Ezekiel. It's gonna, some stuff's going to get a little weird. Um, <clears throat> but that's why we're talking about some of this stuff today. So the the temple in Jerusalem was an important place. It was the center of worship for their nation. And during the time of King Solomon, a long time back, there was a dramatic moment when after the completion of the temple, it was constructed, when God's presence came and rested, and it says his glory came and filled the temple and he came and rested his presence there. And it shows God's favor shows that God wants to meet with people there. It means that he's accessible to people. So that's part of that overlapping between heaven and earth. And from that moment on, the people, they could go to the temple then to bring their sacrifices that God had asked them to do. It was a place where they could pray, a place where they can be forgiven. It was, it was a place to meet with God. Fast forward then to Ezekiel 9 where the prophet describes something, I think, that would have made any Israelite of the time, any person who was used to the idea of God being a part of their community, it would have made their blood freeze. It would have surprised them so much that this would have terrified them. And it's a vision of God's presence moving away from the temple, away from the most holy place. This is Ezekiel 9.3. Then the glory of the God of Israel rose up from between the cherubim. There were these angelic images that were there that had been constructed, but then in, in Ezekiel's vision, he actually sees them kind of come to life. But so there are these, he says, he rose up from between the cherubim where it had rested since the time of Solomon and moved to the entrance of the temple. So there's this, this first kind of earthquake moment that takes place. God is headed toward the door. Then in the next and I, I know, I think about this is kind of like God's got his hand on the, on the door handle, something like that. Then in the next chapter, he actually walks out. This is in Ezekiel 10, beginning in verse 3. The cherubim were standing at the south end of the temple. This is kind of the living representation of, this other, of the, the, these angels. The, t uh, the temple, when the man went in, and the cloud of glory filled the inner courtyard. Then the glory of the Lord rose up from among the cherubim and went over to the entrance of the temple. So now he's moved to the entrance of the temple. The temple was filled with the cloud of glory and the courtyard glowed brightly with the glory of the Lord. The moving wings of the cherubim sounded like the voice of God Almighty and could be heard even in the outer courtyard. You can even hear it outside. 
Then the cherubim rose up, upward. These were the same living beings I had seen beside the Kabar River. If you have been reading along with this, you will remember this kind of terrifying and strange vision he had even in chapter 1. He connects it to that. He's like, this is the same thing I've been seeing from before. When the cherubim moved, the wheels moved with them. When they lifted their wings to fly, the wheels stayed beside them. When the cherubim stopped, the wheels stopped. When they flew upward, the wheels rose up, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Kind of God, they're the throne of God, and they can kind of go wherever they like. There's this image of the wheels can go and go any direction. God goes where God wants to go. Then the glory of the Lord moved out from the entrance of the temple and hovered above the cherubim. And as I watched, the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east a gate of the Lord's temple. Now it's headed to the gate. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. This, this would be a passage for us nowadays, I would think, it's kind of easy to read past. Even if you were reading through the book of Ezekiel, you can read this and you go, yeah, it's kind of confusing. I don't really understand what's going on. This, though, is a monumental event. God lives in the temple, but now God has left the temple. Imagine during the time of King Solomon, when, when they saw God's presence come and rest there, they must have been so encouraged. It would have been a wonderful sight. God really is in this thing uh, that God has come. It's an image of God's presence, God's blessing, God's, God's favor for us, a connection, a reminder of their covenant that God has this promise that he's made to be with them. But now God is leaving there are a lot of positive moments of closure that we have in our lives. Uh, I don't um, know about you, but it, uh, most of us remember leaving high school, if you're out of high school. Uh, we remember what that was like to graduate. Uh, most of us don't always know at that point what's going to happen afterwards. There's this, there's this future that's ahead of us, uh, but at that point we are pretty happy to be done with that chapter of our lives, most of us, unless you were very popular, I think. Um, but it was, it was a moment that you were looking forward to. And, but there are other things that we might dread, things that we hope will never happen and we would be flattened if they did happen. Things that we look forward to, things we dread. But there are other things that we just kind of can't even conceive that could happen to us, good or bad. And this is an event that kind of doesn't fit into the dreading or looking forward to, right? It, they certainly are not looking forward to this, but they, I don't think they could have even conceived of a moment to, to worry that God would leave. It's one thing that the people have wandered away from God. That's been the story for a while. But for God to actually leave, I think that they never would have considered that. God is removing his presence from among the people. God has left the building. Why is this happening? Uh, if you have been with us, you know that in this, throughout this sermon series, there's been a big problem of the people turning to other gods, committing idolatry, just not really either, either openly defying what God wants or just kind of ignoring God which is the story for a lot of us in general. The people have repeatedly and persistently given their energy to something else. They've given their hearts to other gods. And the, and the prophets keep saying, hey, don't do that. Don't give your hearts to other gods. But it just kept happening despite all the warnings. And that this temple is meant to be a place where people are going to go for worship, where they're supposed to, to reveal their sins, to be a place where they can really be open to God. That the heart of the nation had turned away from God. And it, what's, a, what's interesting is that 
the, through all the things that had happened, up and down all the ways that people have left him, God has not left. It's kind of almost more surprising, actually. God hasn't left them. Over hundreds of years, he's been super patient. Never turned his back on them. He kept trying to bring them back through all of this. But now we have an image of God saying, okay, you don't want me? I'm out. So if the invasion from the Babylonians was bad, bad, monumentally bad, that that everything changes, that is bad, but somehow this is even worse that God is leaving. And it's not because they've been invaded, it's because they've given their heart to something else. It's devastating. I think it's an image that tells us that, you know, even if you're in exile now, what is there to go back to? There's an image of judgment in that. And it seems pretty final. Because when, when God came into the building, what happened was that there was kind of an ordinary building, even if it had been built carefully, but it was ordinary stone, ordinary wood, that somehow now, because of God's presence, takes on new significance and has a new status as a place that is holy, not because of the stones, but because of God himself being there. And so now, as God leaves, it means that that place has now turned from being a place of special significance to now just being a regular building. But before we get too sad about that, we know that God's presence is still with his people. If you read the book of Daniel or the book of Esther, we know that God is with them in Babylon and there are people who give themselves to God. All right, that's the first vision, the first vision of God leaving. But there's a second vision later in the book of Ezekiel. This time, it's God's presence returning to the temple, showing a renewed, a restored relationship. This is in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Eight, nine chapters. I'm not going to read them all. You're happy. Um, if you are reading with us, these chapters are actually ahead in our weeks of reading. But what happens in Ezekiel 40 to 48 is the prophet is given this hopeful vision of the purified temple and God's spirit returning to be a part of that, to inhabit it. And over these chapters, there's a bunch of descriptions of kind of minute measurements that are given for the courtyards and the temple and the rooms for the priests. And and it's kind of like a list of names in other places in the Bible. It's going to be a little hard if you're reading through that stuff. And you might think, hey, you know, if if I'm a Christian, if if this is God's plan, if he wants to be building this thing, maybe I should be somebody who needs to contribute somehow. Maybe I should be saving rock somewhere, I don't know, to build this temple. Should I be putting some money ready for buying timber? I will say, no, do not. Please do not ever give anybody money for building a temple, not if you're a Christian. And there's a reason for that. Because I think that uh, Ezekiel's vision is meant to be symbolic. And it's symbolic of this purified temple that God is sending to us. And I have a few reasons for thinking this. The first one is the rationale that God gives to Ezekiel for why he's describing this temple in so much detail. He actually gives a rationale in 43.10. He says, hey, I want you to describe this temple to the people so they are ashamed. They're ashamed of their sins. He says, "I, I want you to say what this place is like. And the idea is, hey, look, 
you, have, you don't even know what a temple is supposed to look like a bit, but they're supposed to think about and contemplate the idea of a temple. It's supposed to remind them that they've been unfaithful to God. And even that they're looking forward to this future temple shows that God, God never gave up on them even though they gave up on him. There are other reasons, though, to think that these are not necessarily instructions for building, but rather a representation of the perfect temple. Uh, Near the end of their exile, a a man named Ezra comes from Babylon, gets sent back to Jerusalem where the temple was, and he goes and rebuilds a temple. That was his job. He rebuilt a temple there. And you know what? He didn't use any of these measurements to build that. So he didn't consider this something that was meant to be instructions for him to build it. Neither did Herod. There was a king later on named Herod during, um, just before Jesus' day, um, and there, the, the Herods built the temple and expanded it, and they didn't use this either, so they didn't consider it to be instructions. It actually would have been, another reason is it kind of would have been hard to follow the instructions because there are lengths and widths that are given for everything, but there's no height anywhere in any of the instructions. So there, there's kind of a floor plan, but not any height, so they couldn't actually follow it. It's not meant to be a real plan, but symbolic. And I'll say the last thing is, in in chapter 47, there is an image of this temple that then has a river flowing from the temple, and it goes out to water an area near them. This image then of, of giving water directly from the temple, it's not something you can build, And it becomes a a watering, an area that's viewed as like a new Eden. So God's temple is flowing out something into a world that becomes a new Eden. Makes me think that this is meant to be symbolic of of the blessing that's flowing from there. All right, so there's a symbolic future temple that Ezekiel is describing, but it's super important. Because right in the middle of this description of a new city and of this new temple that's supposed to be there that would have given so much encouragement to people in exile, there is a description of God's presence coming into this. And this is in Ezekiel 43, verses 1 to 7. Let's look at that. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, remember that the Spirit left going toward the east. The glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. That was when he was leaving. And just like the vision I had seen by the Chabar Canal. That's chapter 1 in the very beginning. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, it's a phrase that Ezekiel uses for himself, this is what the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. So here, Ezekiel, he has a vision of the glory of God returning to the temple. And this time, he says it's going to be permanent. He's going to be here forever. He's coming to dwell in the midst of Israel his people. Well, if it doesn't point toward an actual thing that you and I are supposed to build, what does it point to? And I think it would be helpful for us to understand how New Testament writers interpret all of this stuff. They're helping us to see how they would see this. So, 
following in the Old Testament, the temple is, a, is, a, is an important New Testament idea as well. And we're going to understand what Ezekiel is saying a lot better if we understand what the New Testament developments show us about this whole thing. For example, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, he has a vision that picks up all of this imagery of the book of Ezekiel. He quotes the book of Ezekiel a lot in Revelation. It makes it easier to understand Revelation if you've read Ezekiel. He, he says that he points also to a perfect city. But in John's vision, that city that's perfect actually doesn't even need a temple. It says this, because the, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So there is a temple there, but it's God himself. Because the temple was supposed to be the place where heaven and earth overlap. And in this vision, all of the earth, all of creation, all of heaven overlap in the new creation. So it's super, super important. God is coming to dwell in the midst of the people forever, said Ezekiel. And John says, that is going to happen. All right, stick with me. In John 1, in the book of John, the, the gospel, the, one of the stories of the, the, the biographies of the life of Jesus, he uses some of the language here from Ezekiel in a really purposeful way. You may have heard this verse before, but not necessarily put right together with Ezekiel. Listen to this. This is from John 1, 14. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That he came and dwelt with us. That, that Christ himself is God's word coming to dwell with us. And it's, you hear the echo from Ezekiel, God coming here. It's super purposeful. And, and Jesus, he, this isn't just somebody else saying this about him. Jesus uses this kind of language to talk about himself. This is from John 2, just a chapter later. Jesus answered them to the people. He says this, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Or take Matthew 12. I tell you, he's speaking to, to people standing in the temple areas, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Speaking about himself. So the temple is this place where God dwells with his people among human beings. And the, and the Old Testament is promising this thing. And what the New Testament tells us is that in the body of Jesus Christ, that promise is fulfilled and it's even better than what they thought. In fact, it's better than the old temple. And, and that's not it. That's not the end of it. That's not all, folks. In the New Testament, <laughs> the New Testament, it says that by our spiritual connection with Jesus, by the fact that if we say that we are in Christ, that's a, a, a very New Testament word, they say that we are in Christ. If we are in him, then we are unified with him. We're connected with him in a deep way, in so, such an important way that we are now considered the body of Christ. And if we are the body of Christ, then that means that we are the temple. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 3.16. The Apostle Paul says, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Now, we, we start to see the importance of Ezekiel, that this is that something that we didn't think was very important is actually getting echoed in the New Testament. They're trying to say something really important. This image that had been for hundreds and hundreds of years, God was using that to prepare us for what he wants to do in us, that we are now 
the temple. That might raise some questions for you. Uh, If Jesus is the temple, that makes sense, right? Jesus is perfect. Uh, We can understand that. But the church, if you have traveled in a Christian faith for a while, you may have been hurt and badly by a church, maybe even by our church. You have been hurt by people who are Christians. You think, how can God inhabit a church or people? It's problematic because we've already established that God can't dwell in an impure place. God God was not going to stay in the temple because it was impure. He had left it because of their idolatry. The church is a people pointing toward a Savior. That's fine. And it's funny because, you know, individuals even in the church, why... We, it's a prerequisite even for us to be a part of Christian faith that we would admit that we are people who need a Savior. We admit, it's kind of a, the most basic thing as we begin our life of faith, as we say, hey, I, I need God in my life. I am not perfect. I, I can't get there on my own. I have to embrace Christ and turn away from my previous life. That's what I need. So you might wonder, how, how can God dwell in a broken church? How can God inhabit sinful people? And the answer is because of the cross. Because of the cross. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. What what he did in a cosmic way. It was something much bigger than one day. This is an important event for forever. And rather than trying to explain it in my own words, let's turn directly to Colossians 1. And you can hear in Colossians 1, you're going to hear the echoes of Ezekiel. Listen for it when we go through this. You're going to see this fullness of the glory of God and God's presence that can dwell in us. It says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Notice his fullness, this this full presence coming to dwell in Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So he's he's reconciling us, which means if we need to be reconciled, God's bringing us to him. He's not changing. He's like, hey, I never left. You guys were the ones who left. But he's doing everything necessary to bring us back to him. If we need to be reconciled, that means that there's some conflict there. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. In that description, you know, he's talking to people in the New Testament, but don't we start to sound like the Israelites from before? We're the same, we've got the same problems going on. That We're the kind of people who turn away from God. We're not any different. Verse 22, and yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Through through death to present you, I'm sorry, I had a different version here. uh, To present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Or in another version it says that you stand before him without a single fault. We're able to stand before him without blemish and free from accusation. We have to let that sink in for a second. It's super powerful. So the New Testament is telling us a pretty amazing truth. It's saying that we can be the temple of God because of the cross. Because in Christ, we have received a powerful purification. God's presence 
has come to dwell in us. And the broken relationship that was before, where God distanced himself from his people, it's now reversed. It looks different. And not only has God come to be with his people, he says he has come to be in his people. So we've come to dwell with us, in us. You are God's temple. And if we're the temple, then we need to spend some time reflecting on what that means. And I, I think that we have the, there's a lot of ramifications. I, I can think of a few. I, I think it changes the way that we view ourselves. God has taken something ordinary, ordinary people, and he has infused us with extraordinary meaning and holiness because of his presence, just like that other building. It was just wood. It was just stone. And now it's something special. And that's the same for you. God has put his name on you. God has claimed you. You're his, and you are different. God has done something really purposeful, and it changes everything for us. It's now a place to meet with God. And, and the thing is, the temple in the beginning was a building, and it was, it was never meant to be the permanent thing. It was always meant to be a shadow, an, an image of what was going to come later. It was supposed to help prepare us to understand that whole idea of heaven and earth overlapping and where God would indwell a place, and it helps us to understand the deeper truth that God would live in his people. You are God's people. You know, from our own perspective, when we, when we come to faith, maybe you feel like there was a day when you, you kind of decided to be a little more spiritual. You're like, hey, I, I'm willing to go to church. I'm willing to maybe start praying. That's from your perspective. You see it as like, I am taking a step of faith and I, and I chose this thing. But it, from God's perspective, he's saying, I'm putting my spirit in you. When you gave your life to Christ, he gives us his spirit and we become his temple. And what ends up happening for us is that we end up becoming who we were always created to be. We're meant to be people who are in relationship with God. And if that was broken, then, then there's a huge part of our life that wasn't there. You, you were made, everyone's made in the image of God. But now you get to be with God, to be inviting God to, to remake us so that we live into that image so if we are the temple, then it changes us and it changes the way we view ourselves. If we, too, second, if we are the temple, it changes the way that we see our power for holy living. If we're the temple, that means that he's in us. He gives us the power, it says in Philippians, he gives us the power to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has infused you with power. So we aren't just trying to muster up all the strength that we need so we can be good for God. It's not something like that. We are always, if the if we are the temple, then we are always responding to God in us. So if you have an impulse to want to pray, that's actually a view of the life of the Spirit working in you, drawing you to pray. That's the Spirit working in you. But when you're willing to forgive, that's the Spirit working in you. When you're moved to a particular act of generosity, that's God working in you for the good of other people. If you're motivated to an act of love, all of those things. When we offer to people what they don't deserve, we are acting like Jesus. So it's the spirit working in us, whether that is a surly teenager who doesn't necessarily deserve it, or if you are a teen, that is giving patience to your parent who doesn't know anything and doesn't know any better. Okay? You're loving them like Jesus loves people. That's the spirit working in you. Maybe you have an aging parent 
who has become really combative because of dementia. That happens to us. We are, it doesn't feel like we are, want to give them love in that moment. We are giving them what they don't deserve. We are the temple that God's going to give you the power to grow, to be like him. He's going to give you power. He's going to give you a purpose in the world. That power that we have is power for a purpose. The, the temple, it, it existed to be a place where God, people could meet with God. And we are sent into the world to be God's ambassadors. We're sent to be agents of a new creation to say it, it doesn't need to be like it is everywhere else. And even I'm part of the brokenness and I need saving, but all of us need to be changed by the life of God. God is alive and we're going to testify to that by our words and by our actions in the world. So as a temple of God, we seek to walk by the Spirit instead of just trying to pamper ourselves or protect ourselves we're thinking about the world because we have a purpose as we go into the world. But this week, I would like for us to reflect on this idea that Christ has purified you and has made you a temple of the living God. I, I'll tell you, I've been meditating on that all week, and it's, it's shaped the way that I see the world, and I hope that it changes the way you see yourself and the power for living and your purpose. And we're doing, if we do that, we're going to be doing what Ezekiel was seeing in chapter 43, that God has come to dwell among his people. So when you're, this week, when you're out buying gas, sitting there pumping, whatever. Think about this. Give yourself 30 seconds to think. Christ has purified me to be a temple of the living God. When, uh, what were some of the other things that we said last week? We said, uh, when you're gardening, you can do that. You can think about this thing. When you're out walking, if you're not listening to your podcast, uh, when you're showering, uh, when you are waiting in line, I don't know, any of those places, you can think about this. Reflect on this this week. Because listen, I think that this has the potential to shape your view of yourself and the world. This has the potential to make you somebody who really directs your attention to God in very difficult places. It's going to make you ready to see God at work around you, ready to see what he has in store for you, maybe even see what he wants you to do in that situation. And I think that this would result, if all of us did this, it's going to result in Christians being willing to lead a quiet and faithful life, a faithfulness, we're going to be anchored in the storms of life. I need to work that in there somewhere. There you go. Um, so, but you know, we need to be people who aren't just adding to the noise of the world, but who are inviting people to enter into the wholeness of life in God. And the beautiful thing is that God is letting us be a part of this. He's transforming us. Well, I hope you will stick around with us for the next couple of weeks in Ezekiel. There's some other really great stuff in there for us. In the meantime, let's pray. Lord, we ask you to help shape us, shape our minds to understand this stuff. Hey, none of us walked in this morning saying, I wonder in what ways my faith is like a temple. Uh, but I th this truth, God, that you put throughout all of Scripture, we ask that you will help shape our minds to understand it in a deeper way. Why did you include that previously? And now you say that your spirit is in your people. I pray that we really will live into this reality to understand how you have purified us so that we may be a temple of the living God, a place where you are worshipped, a place where people can meet you. May you be glorified in the things that we say and the things we do this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.